1 Peter 3, 7. Uh, that's how all of you come running into church, right? When you're, when you're here. There's so much excitement and enthusiasm. Uh, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dearly Father, thank you for the men in the past and the women in the past that have stood and made a difference by standing on the firm truth of your word. Thank you that it was not their own that they stood on, but it was your truth and your word that does not shake because you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in light of all of those, as Hebrews 11 even reminds us of these went on pointing towards Christ and Christ alone, may you fix our eyes on him and him alone. Thank you for men like Daniel that stood, that counted the cost and understood that obedience to you was more important than obedience to any other this worldly uh, rulers had to offer, that he would follow you and follow you alone. And so, dearly Father, may we do that as well. May we take that example having our eyes fixed on you, the author and finisher of our faith. We ask these things in your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but um, how many of you were alive, just think, in 1996? Well, if you were alive in 1996, uh, there was a song that was penned by a country singer, Tracy Lawrence, and it went like this, part of the song. South moves north, north moves south. A star is born and a star burns out. The only thing that stays the same is that everything changes, everything changes. And then the chorus goes, time marches on, time marches on, and so the song goes. It's interesting, though, at that same year, that was, which was roughly 26 years ago, in a time where the country singers are talking about time changing, a law was passed literally signed in a bipartisan law that was signed in, uh, into the, the United States that defined marriage as a man and a wife. And at that time, the president actually signed that. His name was President Bill Clinton, signed it into law. Less than eight years ago, it was actually law in the United States that same-sex marriage was illegal, only eight years ago. Not even in a span of a generation did we literally have going from a bipartisan law defining marriage to what we have now. And you go, how did that happen? Uh, if you look at the way even morality shifts over time, we are living in an unprecedented time where literally morality is shifting by the tweet. And we are sitting there going, what is happening? And we don't even know which way is up, down, left, right, or center. Things change quickly. So my question is, what has brought about this line of thinking that has impacted so many, and how has this line of thinking even impacted the church? If literally 26 years ago, Congress was passing a law that defined marriage, and now we're struggling with what are we going to do a law about what is marriage and everything else. We don't even know the people involved in marriage, what they are. How did we go in a short span of 26 years from one way to the other? And in that type of a movement, it is without without saying the church has been caught up in this. When you have that big of a cultural shift, the church is impacted. Well, here's what happened. And I think it's a small shift, but it's a huge shift at the same time. Society has moved from a thinking society to a feeling society. 
We've moved from a thinking society to a feeling society. Now, I'm going to give you some very short definitions about what is the difference between thinking and feeling. Uh, thinking is when you interact with the facts. All right, so there's facts, and you think about these facts, and you're interacting with these facts. And you're either deciding, you know, whether you're looking at a car, and you're looking at what are the things that help me with this car and that car, or like what are the gas mileage, and so forth. And, you know, all of those things, those are thinking things. Feeling is an emotional response. So if you were buying a car on thinking, you would look at the price, you would look at all of the other just facts that are there. If you bought it on feeling, you would sit there and look at the cars devoid of any of the facts and just, which car do I feel like buying? All right. This thinking and feeling has had some major impacts. Because the thinking part was understanding where, as since we're talking about husbands and wives, the thinking part reminds us that by sheer definition of these words of what is a husband, what is a wife, what is a male and a female, and all these things, the thinking part gets you to no other conclusion other than marriage is between a male and a female, all right? And like, these are just duh statements. But when you start feeling, then someone can come in and say a statement like this, as long as it's okay between two consenting adults... They just feel their way into whatever they want to feel about. I would also encourage you to keep your eyes open to even when they're trying to tell you who to vote for. It's all about feeling. You don't really care about the facts. Don't let the feeling get in the way. This has impacted the way we even come to the Bible. I have heard countless times in Bible studies and things like this, people talking about a passage of Scripture, and they would say, I feel that this passage means this. And I want to politely say, I don't care about your feelings. What does the passage actually say? Or we will say things like this. This passage, what this passage means to me is this. Well, you are the one that's not determining the meaning. The passage says what it says. You don't determine what you think the passage means. The passage only means one thing because it is bound by words. And words have meaning. It has impacted marriage. You hear things like this, I fell out of love with my spouse. Like, did you trip the other day? And, you know, like, because if love is just an emotion, then you can fall in and fall out of that emotion. But actually love, reading 1 Corinthians 13, love tells us it is a choice. Because you do not want your spouse waking up each day deciding if they feel like loving you or not that day. Nor would it be acceptable if a couple was standing in front of me and one of them had committed the sin of adultery, and they said, no, 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 it really isn't that bad, because that day I didn't feel like I was married, so it's okay, because I wasn't feeling it that day. But if we live in a sense of feeling, we are then bound to just follow emotions, and emotions are incredibly easy to be manipulated and changed, because I can guarantee you, most of you do not Watch TV wondering, when can I give to starving children, or when can I give to a puppy that is malnourished, and all of a sudden you get a commercial that comes on, and you see all these things, and before you know it, you're signing money away because they just put a tear-jerking story in front of you, and you're just giving after emotional thing because you just got swept up in the excitement of it. The Bible and its word always stands in a stark contrast to the world. So if you allow your feelings to run you, you will, first of all, be what James talks about as a double-minded man unstable in all your ways. 
Whether you're feeling it today or you're not feeling it tomorrow, if you allow those things to control you, you will come to passages of Scripture that we are going to be reading again, reminding ourselves in here in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, and there's going to be a lot of things that you're not going to feel like doing. But we are not to come to God's Word and decide what we feel like doing or not. As I've said before, to disobey and disbelieve the Bible is to literally disobey and disbelieve God. And as a preacher, I'm bound by the text. Uh, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 would probably not have been the way I would have addressed this issue. But that's not up to me. I'm bound by what the text says. And as bound by what the text says, in order to be faithful to the text, words have meaning, and these words are not up for me to debate. I don't get to sit in there and go, well, I don't like the fact that he said heirs of the grace of God, of the grace of life, and just go, well, Tim decides it's going to be this. No, the text says what it says, and I am bound by it. So I am left with either I obey it or I reject it. I don't let my feelings get in the way. Now, truth should impact my feelings but I don't feel my way to truth. So what we've seen here in verses 1 through 7 of 1 Peter 3 has literally been a massive avalanche of the culture trying to destroy the God-honoring roles of men and women in a marriage. The culture is, as we walk through this, in these last five weeks, we saw the roles of men and women, in, and I believe in, it's all in the purity of what God has called us to, and we've seen the way the world has tried to continually bombard and saying, no, that's not the way it should be. If you want change, this is the way you do it. And we've watched the world and the Word of God be a battle with one another. As we listen to the culture come in and say, no, 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 there is no differences in genders, there is no differences in roles, literally the only thing you have, the difference is just what anybody feels like they are that day, and Peter comes in and says, through the inspiration of the Word of God, this is the way it is. So now, as we come to the conclusion, I want to read for us again all that Peter has said here in these short seven verses before we hit this last phrase. So, verse 1 of 1 Peter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of a hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty and gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is very precious." So again here, Peter is summarizing these five verses. He literally says, ladies, when you are married, if you want to bring lasting change into your husband's life, if you want to bring lasting change to a husband who's not following the word of God, this is how you do it. Through a quiet and gentle spirit, which is, this here is very precious in the sight of God. You do it. You can even do it without even a word by just adorning yourself and living, trusting in God that through your conduct, Your husband will see your respectful and pure conduct, and that will actually bring about lasting change. You don't need to use your external beauty, but you use the internal beauty, the adorning the hidden person of the heart through a gentle and quiet spirit. That is very precious for God to do. And women, you're left by going, but that's going to take patience, and that's going to take time, but I want to see the fix now. And so the temptation is going to be, and we walk through that. I'm just going to just keep on him until he finally changes. And we we talked about the 
What happened with men then? We just change on the external. There is no internal change. All it has done is living our lives to try to keep peace in the home and where there is no lasting change. But Peter's telling us, you want to bring about lasting change, this is how it happens. Verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Peter reminds us, this, you are not called to do something that other women have not been called to do. This is how it used to be done. This is how it is to be done. By submitting to their husbands. And then he gives the example how Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. As we talked about that, that whole idea of calling him Lord, she's saying that he is my guy, the guy that I'm going to follow. This is a respectful calling him Lord. We're on the same team, and he's, he's my guy, and I'm going to follow him. Why was she able to do that? Because she trusted God, and in trusting God, she was able to trust the man that God had placed to help her and to love her, which was Abraham. And so she could see right through all of that, but by seeing through that, she saw Abraham and saying, he's the guy. Then we continue on, it says, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. There is no fear in this. As a godly lady continues to work out this entrusting herself to God, there's nothing to be afraid of. And then Peter turns in verse 7. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. That pursuit of knowing your wife, husbands, is what we've been called to do. We need to show them honor. How do we honor them? As the weaker vessel, and we talked about that weaker vessel, that weaker vessel is not to be exploited. The weaker vessel is to be honored and respected. Because remember, as we said before, weak men exploit women. Men who are strong, men who are willing to do the hard thing, honor women. And then we're going to get to the passage today. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. All right, before we dive into today's passage... I just want to step aside here and talk to you as, as pastor to flock here real quick. So here's what, what, has, what happens many times, and I am sure we'll see the same thing play out. Whenever I've had the, the privilege of going through a marriage series, uh, there's usually a couple of ways that people that are married respond to it. Number one, they start to see that their marriage has some things that need some work, and you just ignore it. All right? You just put the black tape over the service engine's light soon, and you're good to go. Right? You get a second that goes, well, hey, don't worry. Even though this has been happening for the last 20 years, we can fix it ourselves. All right? That's another one. Or the third one is, hey, we need some help, but we're too embarrassed to ask for help. Because what if people realize that we have a marriage that's struggling? All right, let's just cut to the chase. All of your marriages are struggling because you have two sinners living together. All right, let's, like, let's get past that for a second. Each one of you needs this. I need this. Because here's how pastors hear this. All right, so when Alice and I have problems in our marriage, who's not supposed to have problems, first of all? The pastor, right? So who do I go for counseling? Because if it would just leak out that Pastor Tim and Allison are getting marriage counseling, the rest of you would go, well, why are we going to talk to him? His marriage is a wreck. It'd just be a wreck talking to a wreck. And I would say... What we are are sinners saved by the grace of God, and what you are are sinners saved by the grace of God. And your marriage, if it is a normal marriage, will have conflict. And if you are not having conflict, I would most likely probably say you're probably ignoring it. All right? Because there, or you just come in and I'll just keep asking you enough questions and we'll find something. All right? Because it won't take long. All right. And so what happens then in this is we don't work on our marriages. What do we do? We love to just ignore it, right, and hope that it goes away. But my prayer is 
Now, this does not mean that I'm going to go, I'll put my list of marriage counseling out there and we'll just have it fill it up. But what I'm trying to say is when issues arise, you're normal and we're here to work with you. The elders, the deacons, we're all here to work with you and to help you because you know what? As your marriage goes, so goes everything else. So goes society, so goes everything. No other relationship is to mirror Christ in the church. Marriage does. Do you think Satan's going to try to attack it? Have any of your last 26 years, do you think marriage has been under attack in any way? I'm saying that as sarcastic as possible. Why, you want to ask us, why does the society care so much about this? Because Satan knows this is such a beautiful picture of Christ in the church. And so when the temptations rise and everything, he's going to go right after the number one picture of Christ in the church is marriage. That being said, you are more than welcome to come and talk to me anytime you want about your marriage, and not once will I go, oh, I can't believe you're having problems, all right? It's the people that don't come and talk to me that I'll go, wonder what they're hiding, all right? Because we all have struggles. So point number one here, vessels, we honor them as the weaker vessels since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Point number one, honor your wife as a fellow heir. It's interesting here as Peter's talking about honoring her as a fellow heir when he's writing this incredibly in his culture around them, women were viewed as only the value that they could bring into a society. So women at that time, especially in the um, the 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 culture of that time, women, because of their not being able to carry the weight that a man could do, they were looked down upon. They were looked down upon in many areas as just even being lower class citizens. But what does Peter remind the believers at this time? He says, they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Co-heirs here. Now, I want to be, there's a couple of things I want to point out even about the statement. What Peter is doing here, he's assuming that when he's speaking to these individuals here, he's assuming that they are both Christians. He is not just saying a man or a woman without the gospel is heirs of the grace of life. This is a given because he's writing to a group of exiles. And so when he's speaking, he is speaking to a group of people that are saved. And before we go any further than that, I want to make sure we understand, because we're about ready to sit at the table here, we're about ready to sit at the table here to understand what does it mean to be a Christian. Again, being a follower of Christ literally means you follow Christ. So what does that mean? What that means is that you've come to the place in your life where you understand that God is holy and you are a sinner. The Bible's clear. It tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You are not getting into heaven because you show up at CBC. No different than you showing up at Lambeau Field makes you a Green Bay Packers fan. All right? I was there for a soccer game. There weren't any Green Bay Packers fans there. They were all soccer fans there. That didn't make them Green Bay Packer fans. Showing up to church doesn't mean anything. Being born to parents that are Christians doesn't mean anything other than you were born to parents who are Christians. Coming to the place in your life where you have asked God to forgive you of your sins and place your faith and trust in Him because the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. That when you sin... You are accumulating for you eternal punishment and death, but God, who is rich in His mercy, came. And He died on the cross to take the punishment for sin. And He rose again, destroying death. And those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ can be gloriously saved. So if you're here today and you have not done that, 
I would encourage you, there would be no greater joy than each one of us would have in our hearts to know that today you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It was once said if after a service, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ or you do not know what it means to put your faith in Jesus Christ, ask the guy next to you. And if they don't know, come both of you come talk to me after the service because this is what we're here for. We could, in a way, we could care less about whether you had food when you came in here. We want you to have the spiritual food of the Word of God, first and foremost. So that being said, these, are, these women... Your wife, if she is a believer, is an heir with you of the grace of life. A fellow heir. Turn real, real quick back to 1 Peter 3, 4. 1 Peter 3, 4 says this. Blessed be God and our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is this salvation brought about? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Here, Peter is reminding all the believers that if you are a follower of God, you have been born into an inheritance. Husbands here, reminding yourselves here, Peter's reminding you that your wife is an heir of the grace of God with you. And what does that mean if she is an heir of the grace of God? That means she has been born again where God has opened her eyes to see her need of a Savior and has placed her faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That means she is a child of God. Treat her as such. That also means that she belongs to God. Treat her as such. She is an heir of grace. Right back to 1 Peter 1 again. 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore, prepare your minds for actions. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is this grace that she is an heir of? The heir of the grace of life. What this grace is, it is a future coming grace. That when she stands before God and is to give an account, she does not stand on her own righteousness, but she stands on Christ and His righteousness alone. What Peter is doing here is telling to the men, wake up. Yes, she may be weaker physically, but in no other way is she weaker to, than you. And you were not to exploit that weakness. Why? Because of who she is. She's an heir of the grace of life. And what is this heir of the grace of life going to do? This coming grace that is to come, it is going to bring glory and honor to God. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Continue reading. In this you have rejoiced, not for a little while, if necessary. You've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gentlemen, as your wives continue to walk through this Christian walk, though they may have various trials, and may, you may even be the point of why they have some of these various trials, she is still a co-heir of the grace of God and is to be treated as such because in these trials, her faith is being strengthened and one day she will stand before God testifying of the glory of God's grace in her life. Treat her as such. Men, Peter is telling us here, reminding us that we are living with the heir of heaven. Another way of saying it is literally a queen of heaven. This is who you're living with. Treat her as such. Do not manipulate or do not exploit weakness. As you honor her, you're honoring her as a weaker vessel, not in any way of belittling her. But literally, this text is carrying with it, there's an amazement of this, that you are li literally living with a co-heir of the grace of God. Wake up. 
respect her as such. This is why we need to take our leadership in the home incredibly serious. Because we are guarding a treasure that God has placed under our care. That He died to redeem. Think through that, men. When you're sitting there and you're frustrated about something and you just want to let your wife have it, think and remember who you're talking to. A co-heir of the grace of God. That is why men, we are called to love and cherish and to nurture. That is why this is hard, because Satan knows this. Satan does not want this to play out. Satan wants to make these things about love and nurturing and cherishing our wives to be difficult, a task that it should be a joy to do. Satan, what he wants to do is make that to be a burden on us as men. But because of sin, the struggle is going going to be real. Women, I just want to make sure we're clear on this as well. Before sin starts to creep in here, I want to remind you of this. You do not deserve the special treatment just because of who you are. What is the text telling us? Because you are an heir of the grace of God. You, didn't, you were not saved in your own merit. So even this treatment of being an heir of God is by God's grace and God's grace alone. Men, we are to wake up and realize who we're dealing with. And ladies, at the same way too, we need to wake up and realize our Value is found in Him and Him alone. Also, too, ladies, a word of encouragement. Because I could, I could tell you right now that your husbands have not treated you as such. Okay, you could be sitting and go, Pastor Tim, you don't understand. The last thing I've ever been treated as a co-heir of the grace of life. Your job, again... 1 Peter 1 through 6 reminds you, live in such a way worthy of that. You are not to disrespect the husband that is struggling with these things. Ladies, we don't say, men, get your act together, what's wrong with you? We say, before the throne of God, God, help me to live in such a way that brings about permanent change in my husband. Because there's a lot at stake here. The text goes on to say, so that your prayers may not be hindered. How does marriage impact your prayer life? This is what we've got to talk about. Because some of you may be sitting here already mentally checking out, saying, I am not married. I have no plans on getting married. I only plan on even dating once I'm married. And so I have nothing, this, this text has nothing to do with me at all. Well, you're going to learn a little bit about prayer, because if you don't understand prayer, you're going to come to texts like this and go, I have no idea what it is. So I'm going to define prayer as simple as possible. Prayer is at its very basic root, communication with God. All right, I'm not going to make it more difficult than that. That literally is what prayer is. It's communicating with God. So the question, in summarizing verse 7, here's what we have. Husbands, honor your wives as the weaker vessel. They are co-heirs of the grace of God. And because if you do not honor them, if you do not love them, if you do not pursue after them, your prayers will be hindered. And so we have to ask yourself, how does, what does prayer have to do with relationships? What does prayer have to do with all of these things? So I want to walk through just how Peter here talks about prayer. So 1 Peter 4, 7, he says, At the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, he gives a command. 1 Peter 4, 7. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. And then he adds at the end, for the sake of your prayers. Notice, he says, if you are not self-controlled and sober-minded, 
It impacts prayer. Go over to uh, Hebrew, 1 Peter, I don't know why I'm Hebrews. 1 Peter 3.12. Listen to what Peter says in 3.12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God's ears are open to the prayers of the righteous. So in, in short, with, we will dive into these passages when we get there even more. In short, there's just even three simple things we can get from this. From these three passages, 1 Peter 3, 7, about husbands, the way you, in, way you work with your wife can hinder your prayers. Talks about if you're not sober-minded, it can impact your prayers. Talking about how God's ears are open to the righteous. Here's one of the things, a couple of just simple truths we can take away from this. You're going to see that sin is a barrier to the relationship with God. Sin is a barrier to your relationship with God. The Bible tells us, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God is raised from the dead, we're saved. But even after that, if there is sin between us, we, between you and God, before you go to prayer, you must confess your sins. Also, too, a very, I would almost say a very simple point here, Sin is a barrier to your relationship with God. I would also say sin is a barrier to your relationships in general. Go to a home where there is bitterness in the home and a resentment in the home. I can almost guarantee you. You can almost take it as a bank. They're probably not praying together as a family. Think about a time in your family when you've had a major argument. Did you probably, in the middle of that argument, if someone said, hey, let's stop for a second and pray, and none of you would go, that sounds like a great idea, Right? I mean, I, growing up, my parents were very good at reminding me to pray for things. I would lose something. You know what my mom would say? Why don't you stop and pray? And I'm like, no, I'm going to work. I'm going to find this on my own. I don't need God. To. And it was amazing to me how many times when I would stop and pray, then the next place I would even begin to look, it would be there. And I'm like, oh, I almost go, you've got to be kidding me. It was almost God would say, Tim, I've, I've, you're like, why do you try all these things on your own? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Prayer is a great revealer of the heart. Uh, one of the things that Alice and I have been continually wrestling with, and I, I, we're slowly doing a better job, is praying together as a couple. And uh, we like to, in our own, own lives, I think I've shared with you before, but we have the long pause. I'll give you an example of how this happens. So we're, we're praying as a couple, and depending on how that day has gone with Allison and I, so I pray first. And then it's Allison's turn. And I know if there's a long pause, she's getting her heart right with the Lord. And usually I'm going, what did I do during that day that is causing this long pause of her just, all right, it's not really that big of a deal that I'm going to deal with. I'm going to go to the Lord in prayer. And the longer the pause, the more I know afterwards we probably should talk about something here because uh, why am I causing that long pause? Because in that short little example there, what are we realizing? There was stuff going on between us. Sin, probably, most likely sin going on between us that we couldn't go to the Lord together in prayer because we weren't right this way. Sin destroys unity in the home. So your prayer is hindered. Matthew eighteen nineteen talks about if two are gathered together in unity and peace, the Lord is with them. Well, let's think about the home. If you do not have unity and peace there, what, what are we not doing? Going before the throne of God. The same thing, too, when it comes to communion. 
in 1 Corinthians 11. What does Paul warn? If you've got issues with one another, don't come before the table, because what's the table supposed to remind ourselves of? The unity we have around this table. So if you've got issues, it's more important for you to solve that issues than it's to even come and remember what God has done. You need to get this together. And that's why if you want to, literally a litmus test of your marriage is how well are you praying with one another? Because men, if you are not treating your wife as a co-heir of the grace of God, guess what you will not be doing? Going before the throne together. Now you may, we're really good at doing stuff separately. You may be going, I have a phenomenal prayer life with me and God. All right, but if you are married, this me and God stuff it's, is there, but you're missing something. Me and God, because you and your wife have become one, you go together. So, Peter is reminding us, if you're not treating your wife, if you are treating or exploiting your wife, or not treating her as a co-heir of the grace of God, your prayer life will be hindered. Men, how you treat your wives, your prayer life will be hindered. So I'd like to bring the conclusion of the matter in the third point here. After spending... Now it is about six weeks on this. I want to remind ourselves of these things. Wives, you are to entrust your life to God. Wives, you are to entrust your life to God. If you have done that, you will then live with your husband having a gentle and humble heart that will lead him to follow God. That's what Peter is reminding you. You live your life in a way, ladies, that entrusts your life to God. Do you trust me? It's how you're living your life. Husbands, you are called to honor your wife, honor her, treat her with dignity and love as you would yourself. Treat her with the honor and dignity of who she is in Christ. This calling in marriage is a wonderful calling. The call in marriage is a call to deny yourself and sacrifice for the other. The call in marriage is a call to deny yourself and sacrifice for the other. If you're honest with yourself and you look back at your pre-married living before you were married with someone else, I didn't realize, and I'll say this tongue-in-cheek, I didn't realize how selfish Allison was until I married her, and guess what she didn't realize? How selfish I was <laughs> until she married me? Because guess what we both realized? We're really selfish. and We don't even live by the ocean. And in this whole thing that is out there, in front of us is how much we do not want to deny ourselves things because what do we do? We come in the marriage and go, I'm getting married because it's going to, and we come at it ourselves instead of realizing that we are married to deny ourselves. To deny this and to say, we have now denied my individual status, I'm becoming one, and that is a journey that's going to take you your whole lives to follow. So here's what I'd like for you to do. It's going to rain this evening, so you'll have some time. I'd like for you to write down right now, I'm going to take a little moment here, to write down two things that you'll be praying for for your spouse. Two things that you're praying for for your spouse. All right, we'll work on yourself in a little bit later. But we're going to, two things that you are praying for for your spouse as you follow out 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. What are the two things that you're going to be praying for for your spouse? And going before the Lord daily on this, because as you start doing that, I can guarantee you, as you start praying for her or him, your attitude towards them will change. I'll give you a moment. Like we'll do when I was teaching. When you look up at me, that means you're done or you're just ignoring the fact of what I ask you to do. But either way, I'll just pretend in my mind that you have done what I've asked you to do. Two things that you'll be praying for your spouse. Now, if you are single in the room here, 
whether you are single and ready to mingle or single until the Lord returns, whichever one you are, guess what you have been called to do? The follower of Christ, literally following Christ, is deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Him. The personal spiritual character that you are working on right now, you will take into marriage when, if or when the Lord allows you to be married. You take baggage with you. There's nothing more important you could be doing right now than to be learning how to deny yourself. Also, if the Lord does allow you to get married, I would be encouraging you right now, be praying for your spouse that you do not know. Be praying that when the time comes around, that the Lord would make it clear for you. Also, I'd encourage you to be living in such a way that would attract godly individuals. Are you living in such a way that would attract another godly individual? Yes, you will have interlopers that are coming in, but you also need wisdom to know when those interlopers come in to go, no, I'm not doing that. I'm looking for a godly man or a godly woman. Are you praying for that? Parents, are you praying for your kids, future spouses? Because these things are huge, because as the family goes, so goes everything else. For you single people, are you praying for wisdom to see the way God would use you? Because if you didn't learn, one of the most selfish times in your life is when you are on your own. Because guess who you care about? Number one, and all of a sudden you get that big eye awakening on the day you get married and you realize, oh, wait a minute, there's somebody else here in the room with me. So on all of that being said, what did we learn today? If you're taking notes, I'd like to write down these three words here. What did we learn today? The answer is this, time. So write down the word time. Then write down the word will. Tell. Time will tell whether you learned anything or not. Whether these last six weeks were just a fun exercise for Tim to talk about marriage or if you're actually going to do things with what the Word of God has called you to do. With all that being said, we're about ready to turn our hearts and minds to the communion table. I would encourage you even now to be preparing your heart and mind as we sing a song that I think does a phenomenal job of explaining the whole communion table and what we're about ready to do. As you sing these words, as these words come out of your heart and your lips, I, I just pray for, for you that these things sink deep into your understanding to remember that great and beautiful salvation that God has so freely given. So let's pray. Dear Holy Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we have an opportunity by your grace to stand firm on that unshakable foundation. That as we have sung songs about standing on the promises of God and how much we love to tell the story and how we dare to stand for the truth, dearly Father, give us men and women that are bold, that are willing to be countercultural in every way possible, but not just to be countercultural, but to be biblically countercultural, following your truth and you alone. We ask these things in your Son's name we pray. Amen.